0: Chapter 21 of Nurse and Spy in the Union Army by Sarah Emma E. Edmonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 21. After the Battle of Antietam, one of the chaplains who was on the field paid a fitting tribute to the colonel commanding the regiment to which he belonged, and vividly described many scenes that came under my own observation on that day. He says, quote, How faithfully many a surgeon labored! our own assistant surgeon was a hero regardless of bullets in the hottest fire he kept coolly on in his work while near by dr kendall of the twelfth massachusetts was killed the nearest hospital that of our own corps was necessarily in range of the enemy's shell which every now and then fell around and beyond near by were five other hospitals all for one wing here were generals and privates brought together general mansfield i saw dying and a few feet off an unknown private general hartsoff badly wounded and by his side a throng of others now on the same level there is no distinction as to what body or soul needs then our own regiment helped to fill these hospitals our gallant dead are remembered with all the other dead of massachusetts but one we lost hard to replace our brilliant brave generous kind-hearted lieutenant-colonel wilder dwight shot mortally but living two days of wonderful promise at home cheerful resigned strong in faith and trust ready to die his only wish being to see his father and mother while lying in the garden moved only on a stretcher he sent our own surgeon to relieve the wounded who were lying all around the surgeons being occupied in amputating limbs of men in the hospitals, and again and again sent water provided for himself to the poor fellows calling for it. Yet Colonel Dwight was not free from brutal insolence. While waiting there in the night for an ambulance in which to place him, only for shelter, suddenly a harsh voice insisted on turning him out with all our men. I found a pompous little surgeon angry and furious, I informed him why the men were there, assured him of their good behavior, and requested permission for them to remain as we were momentarily expecting the ambulance. It was all in vain. Colonel Dwight himself was treated most harshly, although of higher rank than the brute himself, and notwithstanding I told the surgeon he was mortally wounded, he ordered the guard to turn them out at the point of the bayonet, and to prevent their return even to remove Colonel Dwight, refusing to tell his rank and even his name until i obtained it of another party the men were driven away while actually giving water to the wounded who had been calling in vain for help i assured him i would take care that his conduct was made known knowing from several scenes i had witnessed that day that he was from brutality pomposity and harshness utterly unfit to be in charge of wounded men and from gross disrespect to an officer higher in rank, unfit to be in the army. This fellow was a medical director in General Reynolds's Corps, Pennsylvania Reserves, and the writer adds, too good a corps to have such a fellow among them, The ordinary scene which presents itself after the strife of arms has ceased, is familiar to every one, heaps of slain, where friend and foe lie side by side, mangled bodies shrieks and groans of the wounded and dying are things which we always associate with the victories and defeats of war but we seldom expect or hear of songs of praise and shouts of triumph from dying lips on the dreadful battlefield the following account was received from the lips of a brave and pious captain in one of the western regiments as some friends were conveying him to a hospital from the battlefield Quote, the man had been shot through both thighs with a rifle bullet. It was a wound from which he would not recover. While lying on the field he suffered intense agony from thirst. He supported his head upon his hand, and the rain from heaven was falling around him. In a short time a little pool of water collected near his elbow, and he thought if he could reach that spot he might allay his raging thirst he tried to get into a position which would enable him to obtain a mouthful of the muddy water but in vain and he must suffer the torture of seeing the means of relief within sight while all his efforts were unavailing never said he did i feel so much the loss of any earthly blessing by and by the shades of night fell around us and the stars shone out clear and beautiful above the dark field where so many others lay wounded, writhing in pain or faint from loss of blood. Thus situated, I began to think of the great God who had given his Son to die a death of agony for me, and that he was in the heavens to which my eyes were turned, that he was there above that scene of suffering and above those glorious stars, and I felt that I was hastening home to meet him and praise him there. I felt that I ought to praise him then, even wounded as i was on the battlefield i could not help singing that beautiful hymn when i can read my title clear to mansions in the skies i'll bid farewell to every fear and wipe my weeping eyes and though i was not aware of it till then he continued it proved there was a christian brother in the thicket near me i could not see him but was near enough to hear him he took up the strain from me and beyond him another and another caught the words and made them resound far and wide over the terrible battlefield there was a peculiar echo in the place and that added to the effect as we made the night vocal with our hymns of praise to god quote. the presence of such men in the army animated by faith in god and conscious of serving him in serving their country adds materially to its elements of strength and success. The religious element has always been acknowledged as a great power in military success. The more intelligent that principle is, the more efficient it must be in securing this result. There is every reason, natural as well as rational, why those who hold their lives in their hand should acknowledge the god of battle, and pray for themselves and their country in the midst of danger." The simplest expression of the relations of praying and fighting was, perhaps, the blunt order of the Puritan chief, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry. Cromwell and his praying Puritans were dangerous men to meet in battle, quote, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon was exceeding sharp, tempered as it was by hourly prayers, End quote who can but admire the sublime spectacle which Gustavus Adolphus and his vast army presented on the eve of the battle of Lutzen, in which the king fell, praying on bended knees, and then chanting, Be of good cheer, your cause belongs to him who can avenge your wrongs, leave it to him our lord. The king fell, but the battle was gloriously won. And so, says a writer upon this subject, quote, Unless we are untrue to our better nature, it must ever be. Before going into battle, the foolish, wicked oath is silent. With the bracing of the nerves for the shock of battle, there goes up a silent prayer for strength and valor and deliverance. The wounded pray to be saved from death, the dying recall the words of old petitions learned in childhood, and in those broken accents commit their souls to God." the only amusing incident after a battle is the crowd of spectators from washington and other places if they are in carriages their vehicles are sure to get smashed and then the trouble arises what are they to do with their baggage carry it of course or leave it behind even the wounded soldiers cannot help laughing at their sorry plight gesticulations and absurd questions among all this class of individuals there are none to be compared with government clerks for importance and absurdity on one of these occasions i remember of a number of those pompous creatures being distressed beyond measure because they could not return to washington on a train which was crowded beyond description with the wounded after the cars moved off there they stood gazing after it in the most disconsolate manner said one i came out here by invitation of the secretary of war and now i must return on foot or remain here one of the soldiers contemptuously surveyed him from head to foot as he stood there with kid gloves white bosom standing collar etc in all the glory and finery of a brainless fop starched up for display well said the soldier we don't know any such individual as the secretary of war out here but i guess we can find you something to do perhaps you would take a fancy to one of these muskets, laying his hand on a pile beside him. The clerk turned away in disgust, and disdaining to reply to the soldier, he inquired, But where shall I sleep to-night? The soldier replied, Just where you please, chummy, there's lots of room all around here, pointing to a spot of ground which was not occupied by the wounded. A chaplain stepped up to him and said, If you wish to sleep, there is some hay you can have and went on to give him a brief lecture upon the impropriety of a young man in perfect health just fresh from the city, talking about comfortable lodgings and a place to sleep, when so many wounded and dying lay all around him. He was horrified and disappeared immediately. Before the rebels attempted to cross into Maryland in force, the Richmond papers were full of editorials, of which the following is a specimen, quote, let not a blade of grass or a stalk of corn or a barrel of flour or a bushel of meal or a sack of salt or a horse or a cow or a hog or a sheep be left wherever the confederate troops move along let vengeance be taken for all that has been done until retribution itself shall stand aghast this is the country of the would-be gentleman mcclellan he has caused a loss to us in virginia of at least thirty thousand negroes the most valuable property that a virginian can own they have no negroes in pennsylvania retaliation therefore must fall upon something else a dutch farmer has no negroes but he has horses that can be seized grain that can be confiscated cattle that can be killed and houses that can be burned but when they really attempted to accomplish these feats and found with whom they had to contend they were very glad to recross the Potomac without confiscating property or burning houses, and to escape leaving their dead and wounded on the field. After the Battle of Antietam, the army was not in a condition to follow up the rebels, but as soon as the capital was safe and the rebels were driven from Maryland and Pennsylvania, vigorous efforts were made to recruit, clothe, and reorganize the army. Harper's Ferry was again occupied every weak point strengthened, and all the fords were strongly guarded. While the army thus remained inactive for a few weeks, camp duties and discipline were again strictly enforced and attended to. I would not have my readers think that camp life in the army is so very unpleasant after all. I do not think so, for I have spent some of the pleasantest, happiest hours of my life in camp, and I think thousands can give the same testimony." one of our good chaplains from the north says that even the city of new york itself can bear no favorable comparison to military life in the army of the potomac after all he says quote, new york is a humbug compared with the army it is tattoo as i write what music it is compared with the nuisance noises of those city streets our candles are not brilliant but the light of the lights of the camps all around is more pleasant than the glare of the city gas the air is pure air of heaven not the choky stuff of the metropolis the men are doing something noble not dawdling away these glorious days in selling tape and ribbons the soldier lives to some purpose and if he dies it is a hero's death the silks of that wealthy mart may be coveted by some but what are the whole to our bullet-riddled old flag, which passed from the stiffening hands of one color-bearer to another in the days of many a battle? Quote. To give my reader a more definite idea of the routine of camp life, I will enter into a detail of it more fully. At sunrise reveille beats, drum echoing to drum, until the entire encampment is astir and busy as a beehive. Roll-call immediately follows, which brings every man to his place in the ranks, to answer his name. An hour later breakfast call is sounded by fife and drum, and the company cooks, who are detailed for that purpose, deal out the rations to the men as they sit or stand around the cook's quarters. At half-past seven o'clock sick call announces to surgeons and patients that they are expected to appear at the dispensing tent, if able to go there. Then comes a general examination of tongues and pulses, and a liberal distribution of quinine and blue pills, and sometimes a little eau de vie to wash down the bitter drugs. Guard mounting at eight, which is an imposing affair in itself. The band marches to the usual place of dress parade and strikes up some appropriate piece, which is the signal for the regimental details to march to the place of inspection the line is formed, arms inspected, and general appearance noted. Then the men are marched in review, and divided into three reliefs, one of which is marched to the post of each sentinel, where, after various important conferences, the old sentinel is relieved, and the new one takes his place, and so on around the whole camp. The old guard is then marched to their quarters, and formally dismissed, having been on duty two hours out of every six during the last twenty-four hours at nine o'clock the music sounds for company drill which drill lasts an hour and a half the bugle announces dinner at one o'clock at three in the afternoon battalion drill commences which occupies an hour at half past four is heard the first call for evening parade and at five o'clock comes off the great display of the day dress parade supper at six tattoo at half past eight and roll call again at nine immediately after which comes taps on the drum which means lights out but between all these calls drills and parades are more interesting services and duties away in one corner of the camp is our canvas or log meeting house and besides our regular preaching we have conference and prayer meetings Debating clubs, military lectures, and numerous musical entertainments. Then, too, comes visiting the sick in different hospitals, distribution of reading matter and delicacies, and the blessed privilege of religious conversation, and often the solemn services in connection with burying the dead. I will here give a brief description of this service. The burial of a soldier in camp is a most solemn scene a suitable escort is formed in two ranks opposite the tent of the deceased with shouldered arms and bayonets unfixed on the appearance of the coffin the soldiers present arms the procession then forms on each side of the coffin are the pall-bearers without muskets and the escort moves forward with arms reversed that is musket under the left arm barrel downward and steadied behind the back with the right hand the band marches in front with slow and measured tread and muffled drum as they move, pouring out their melancholy wailings for the dead, a sadder dirge than which never fell upon mortal ear. On reaching the place of the interment, the coffin is lowered into the grave, the soldiers leaning upon their muskets muzzled downward, the hands clasped upon the butt of their guns, with heads uncovered and reverently bowed upon their hands. The chaplain, who has walked in the rear of the procession, conducts the burial service at the end of which three volleys are fired over the grave the trenches filled up and the soldiers return to duty warrior rest thy toils are ended life's last fearful strife is o'er clarion calls with death notes blended shall disturb thine ear no more peaceful is thy dreamless slumber peaceful but how cold and stern thou hast joined that silent number in the land whence none return warrior rest thy banner o'er thee hangs in many a drooping fold many a manly cheek before thee stained with tear-drops we behold thine was not a hand to falter when thy sword should leave its sheath thine was not a cheek to alter though thy duty led to death warrior rest a dirge is knelling solemnly from shore to shore. Tis a nation's tribute telling that a patriot is no more, and thy young bride weeps in sorrow that no more she hears thy tread, that the night which knows no morrow darkly veils thy laurelled head. Warrior, rest, we smooth thy pillow for thy last long earthly sleep and beneath young verdant willow storms unheard will o'er thee sweep there tis done thy couch awaits thee softly down thy head we lay here repose till god translates thee from the dust to endless day end of chapter twenty one